you've got a lot of grit. You've got to be very resourceful. You've got to be very self-reliant. When you get knocked down, you got to realize like you got to get up and get up quickly <laughs> because the next punch or whatever could be coming. And so you've got to stay on your feet. And so I also think it made me even more empathetic to the people that didn't make it, quote unquote, because frankly, there were so many kids in school that were far smarter, far better, but they didn't have the support system that I had. That's how success happens. From Entrepreneur Magazine, my name is Robert Tuckman. I self-funded, built up, and eventually sold two businesses to major players in the sports and entertainment industry. And I am fascinated by other entrepreneurial minds and what drives high-achieving people. So on this podcast, we're going to learn what they've learned and what it takes to really succeed. Asahi Pompey is global head of corporate engagement and president of the Goldman Sachs Foundation. She's a member of the Management Committee and the Global Diversity Committee. Asahi leads Goldman Sachs community engagement programs, 10,000 small businesses, 10,000 women, 1 million Black women, Goldman Sachs gives and community teamworks. Despite a storied career, Asahi has quite humble beginnings, growing up as an immigrant here in the United States. While her family didn't have a lot, she had a support system with rich values. I naturally kicked off our conversation by asking about Asahi and her roots and what it was like to be an immigrant in the United States, in Brooklyn, New York, in the greatest city in the world. It was mad fun, I would say, Rob. You're at the seawall, you're outside, you're you have a huge cadre of cousins, like one aunt had 12 kids, the other had 10, the other had seven. So there are kids younger than you, older than you, and you're just sort of a bit of a posse sort of roving around doing lots of stuff outdoors. It was pretty fantastic. And what was that like when your parents tell you, you know what, we're going to be leaving this magical, beautiful place and going to Brooklyn, New York? We were super excited. I mean, America was where everything fantastic happened, where everyone wanted to go. And it was like getting the golden ticket. I remember my aunt Eglantine told me in Brooklyn, you use a pencil once and Americans throw it away just because it's, they just have so many. And I remember in Guyana, like you used your pencil till it was like down to the stud. And the idea of Americans using their pencil once and they tossed it over their shoulders because they had so much abundance was, I was pretty excited. I was like, yeah, bring it on. And then growing up in Brooklyn, and and I I love this about your story, obviously being a a native New Yorker myself and and understanding just in terms of schooling and, and Brooklyn in itself. What was that? What do you recall? What was that like initially when you just started and and first started interacting with with other kids at, at school? It was a real adjustment. Look, I I came at fourth grade. Miss Mason was my fourth grade teacher. I went to PS 269 on Nostrand Avenue. And to kind of take you there, Rob, this class had kids that were, were from Russia, kids that were Chinese, kids that were from the Caribbean, and kids that were from New York. And so it was this like melting pot of, of people all in one place who got along most of the time and didn't at other times. The level of focus on education kind of differed depending on the person and the class, it was rough and tumble. You had to sort of make your way in the playground, make your way at the monkey bar, and you had to be pretty tough. And it sounds like 
Did you have a lot of support from your parents growing up? Were they there in terms of especially making a move like that from Guyana to Brooklyn? What was that like for you? Lots of support from my parents, but they worked a lot. Like my mom had two jobs. She worked as a maid and we called it a domestic. My mom was a domestic and my aunt worked for the same woman. And my mom did the weekends. My aunt did was just sort of typical sort of Caribbean immigrant story in terms of we were sort of attached to a single family and cousins and aunts sort of did around the clock. My dad got a job at Con Edison and we were just thrilled when he got that job. We all prayed the day before he was going in for the interview. And there was a real sense of one person's success was everyone's success. And you kind of knew who was interviewing, who was trying to get a job, um, lots of discussion around that. So lots of familiar support and frankly, an expectation that you would be excellent at school. That was not, there was no doubt that that, that was your job was to do really well at school. So were your parents on top of you in terms of all of your grades and, and education? And was that something that was just part of your growing up? I love this question because I'm not sure how to answer it. Here's why. They were not on top of me in terms of knowing what my assignments were or who my teachers were. They didn't come to the parent-teacher conferences. They didn't know what book report was due the way that I do now with my kids. Yet there was this sense that you, it's your job, it's your work, it's in your hands, don't screw it up, and I'm going to look at your grades at the end of the semester, and I expect to see, you know, everything that's in the 90s. That's how they were on top of it, but not in kind of a weedsy way, Rob, but, you know, like setting the bar, and you've got to meet it, and I don't know how you're going to get there, but you're going to get there. You know what? I love that because I'm doing it all wrong right now. I'm going to have to change that up for for my kids because look how you turned out. And I just want to ask you, you know, part of your story is is coming here as an immigrant and Brooklyn and you had an amazing family, but you grew up in the projects, which is really tough. You see a lot of hard things, I imagine. What was that like for you? Well, first of all, if you're doing it wrong, I'm doing it wrong too, because I'm way too involved in every single aspect of what my boys do. Look, it was really hard. Like you, I remember my brother was sitting on the train and we were sitting together and a guy just walked to the train and punched him. I remember sitting down again, my twin brother and me on a bus. And there was a guy in front of us, an old guy who was had his hand on the, I still see him holding on to the bar. And there was a guy behind him picking his pocket. And he made eye contact with the two of us, you know, as like 12 year old kids, we looked up at him. We saw the whole thing happen and we knew Unless you, if you wanted to be safe, you were going to stay quiet. And I remember just coming home to my parents that night, just bawling about being a party to this, to see that. And so there were crack files on the street, those little, you know, we'd collect them at the beginning because they were different colors and they kind of looked interesting until you realized like, that's what that really was. When you sat on the subway, when that door opened between cars, you had no idea what group of people was going to be coming through walking between the cars. And so that's a kind of a different New York, but that was the New York that I grew up in. And how would you say that affected you in terms of what you've been able to do, especially certainly in business? How did that play an impact on, do you think, on your success? You know, you've got, I think it had a huge impact on my, on my path. I think one is you've got a lot of, have a lot of grit. You've got to be very resourceful You've got to be very self-reliant. When you get knocked down, you got to realize like you got to get up and get up quickly (laughs) because the next punch or whatever could be coming. And so you've got to stay on your feet. And so 
I also think it made me even more empathetic to the people that didn't make it, quote unquote, because frankly, there were so many kids in school that were far smarter, far better, but they didn't have the support system that I had. They didn't have the luck that I had. They didn't have the teacher who, you know, saw me in in the non-SD class and said, whoa, you're doing really well in school. You need to be in this other this other group of kids. And literally, Mr. Balsam plucked me out. And one day I was at a I was at a black school. And the next day I was going to a white school, even though it was the same school, because, you know, the classes were different who was in each class. And so I think it it engendered in me a real sense of empathy around people's paths and people's journeys and not judging them. Yeah, it's so sad when you think about and living here in New York City, too, there's just such an incredible discrepancy when you see these kids who are going to these private schools and 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 you see kids who struggling in some of the public schools in some of these areas that really it's it's so unfortunate and bothersome. But for you and seeing that and having that empathy, how do you better that for for some of these students? How do you make it more equal ground or footing? I mean, that must be something you you think about often. I struggle with that regularly on a regular basis. I have to say this weekend I was hanging out with my younger brother and I was had this debate with him about in-person school. And I was like, oh, I can't wait for my boys who go both to public school. I can't wait for them to go back in person every day to school. And I was like, what about you for your son? His son is a year older. And he's like, you know, from a safety perspective, I actually kind of prefer the virtual option. You know, he's going to be a sophomore in high school. And I prefer that he just continues going virtually because I don't have to worry about his safety. And so it's fine to think about it in sort of the 90s New York City, but that's New York City 2021 right now. And as I think about my work at the firm, whether it's a million black, a million black women or 10,000 small businesses, I think about really sort of the role of corporations and how the part that we can play in terms of getting into these discussions, getting into these spaces and really sort of unpacking it from the inside, but also from the outside saying, here's how we want to partner with you, whether it's a public part, a private partnership or other ways in which the private sector can get involved. Let's talk about that. You are, you've been at Goldman for a good amount of time now, but what was that like initially Coming from where you did and, and, and you see it, I know all these people at Goldman and it's like growing up in Westchester, growing up in Long Island, they go to Penn, they do. It's like, honestly, I, I don't know what you're it. talking about. Bro. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you know none of those people in any case. But but what was that like when you went there? Was it was it a little bit of a challenge? Was there any nerves? What what was your mindset? Well, my mindset was that I was going into a space that I wasn't sure was going to be fertile ground for me and that I was going to survive in or do well in. So I remember calling my relatives, literally calling my parents. And I speak to my parents, you know, three, four times a week. And I remember saying to them, starting at Goldman Sachs, I've been at Goldman now 15 years, year 16 has just begun. And I said, I'm not going to call you as often. Like I'm going into like the belly and I need to like focus and figure this out. And either I'm going to fail spectacularly, but I'm going to be stronger and smarter as a result of it, because these people are so intense and, and, you know, so together, or 
I'm going to be able to play at this level and I'm going to be able to contribute and I'm going to stay and get in the weeds and do that. But I wasn't sure which way it was going to play out, but I sort of let them know I'm not going to be as available as I was before because I was preparing myself to get in sort of a mindset around being at the firm and what that meant. I was scared. I was really intimidated. Yeah. Well, you've obviously done incredibly well, but was there ever a time in those early years that you may have thought that maybe this wasn't the right choice? Oh yeah, sure. Everyone's had the bad boss who's like, you're going too fast. I remember I was assigned a buddy and I was like, okay, great. And a mentor. And I remember meeting with them and I was like, I was a VP at the time. And you know, there's VP MD partner. And I said, I want to be a managing director of Goldman Sachs. And I remember like the look on his face, he's like, slow down. You know, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. And I was like, I'm a sprinter. I'm a marathoner. I'm all of that. But it was clear that he was like, you know, slow your roll, girl. You're going too fast. So yeah, I encountered so many people, Rob, whose dreams for me were far bigger than my dreams were for myself. But on the flip side, I encountered a lot of people whose dreams for me were far smaller than my dreams were for myself as well. And so navigating all of that, but here I am 15 years later. Well, you've, you've certainly done amazing and we'll get into your current role where you have just knocked it out of the park and, and doing such incredible things, not only for Goldman Sachs, really for, for the world with some of the programs you have run and are operating, but taking it back to going through Goldman and, and people with less than expectations for you, it sounds like you have this incredible fighting spirit. How did you internalize that when people did say, slow down, did it make you more motivated, more hungry, or, or what did it do inside of you that really helped you? It was like fuel inside of me because I, I remember my dad said, remember, you're as good as or better than these other people that you're interacting with. And I remember saying that to my sons and they're like, how do you know you're as good as or better? Well, maybe you're not <laughs> like this is, this is what an 11 and a 13 year old will do for you. But I have to say when my dad said it to me, I believed it. I was like, yeah, I'm as good as or better than, in, than these people I'm interacting with. And I deserve to be in those rooms. I deserve to be in those spaces. So I had fully internalized that. And so by the time that that MD at the time said that to me, it literally was like water rolling down my back. And I'm like, I'm going to show you, I'm going to be an MD at the firm and I will probably be a partner at the firm and we'll see how that goes. And so it really, I had a strong conviction in myself and my own abilities in part because I knew I was willing to like work anyone under the table. And I knew that I did not have soft skin. Like I'm one of five, you get kicked around a lot, you know, you got to fend for yourself. So I think it was fuel. I love that. It, it's so true how turning that in and the belief that your father gave in you, I mean, how incredible is that, right? You can come from anywhere. And if you can get or have a parent or someone who believes in you tell you that, how far it could really take you. He must be an incredible person. He really is. He, he's coming over today and they're going to stay with me for a week. So I'm excited to like spend time with them and sort of have my boys get some of that as well. My mom, similarly, she did it in a different way, but from a very early age, we were sort of poor in material things, but rich in values. And that was, that was huge because now I see a lot of people who are like, 
super wealthy in, in material things and just values. I'm like, I don't know about that. It really is incredible when, when you think about it. And it's one of the things that I love to see that it's not money or dollars that can instill those values. In fact, it could be the exact opposite because I see that as well a lot. And it's so great when you have that family and they can give you this belief, but then obviously you have to go out and do it and you've done it. I think you have now are the most senior black person at Goldman Sachs. How does that sound to you? It sounds like we should be saying that about, you know, 30 more people, right? Uh, (laughs) Exactly. You know, I always rebel against, you know, exceptionalism in a sense, because I'm not exceptional. And I feel like for every exception, that means that all these other people didn't make it into the room. And so I think my job is is to try to get more people in those spaces and in those rooms and feeling like, and when they get there, that they're a voice and a force in the room. But Goldman's been, you know, an incredible place for me to learn and grow. And I'm still learning and growing on a daily basis. And to be able to see that most senior team of people, we just had our management committee meeting this morning, interact and talk about what's happening in, in the markets, you know, politics, the economy. Like, I just feel it's, I feel incredibly privileged, incredibly fortunate. And do you think, you know, for me, I always judge it not so much when I see people of color or, or minorities, ethnicity uh, on boards. I really judge it when I walk into a boardroom, not a boardroom, I'm sorry. I walk into a, a conference room, a meeting room, and I mm-hmm. see, are there really minorities and, and other ethnicities around that table? And yeah. have you seen, have you, you know, after what's happened over the past years, it's great, the awareness and, and, and people understanding this has to change finally. But like, have you seen outside, let's say, of Goldman and and maybe within Goldman, have you seen real change in terms of people kind of rising up who may not have had those opportunities? And I know it's only been a couple of years we've been in a pandemic, but have you seen that? You know, I have seen a lot of change. I'm no Pollyanna. I think there's lots more to be done. That being said, if you even look at sort of the board of of Goldman Sachs, like our lead director, you know, Biogen Lessie is an African-American man. Our newest board member is, you know, as a black woman, we've got a majority board that's women and that's just Goldman. And we've launched this initiative to get more women and diverse people on, on boards of companies and companies are following suit. And it's incredible to sort of see that. So look, I think it's happening. I think it's happening slower and and not at the scale that we wanted to. But I, if I think about the Wall Street I came to 15 years ago and what I'm seeing now, I'm really heartened, but I'm also, I'm also driven to push it even further. I love that. More from our guests, but first, a word from our sponsors. Starting my new podcast business, Amaze Media Labs, this year, I've had two critical realizations about what's imperative in today's business world from when I started my last company back in 2012. More than ever, we live in a globalized world. It's important to recognize that all content today is global. The problem is nowadays, it's not always easy to access the content you want in other countries. The second realization is that in 2021, we all work from everywhere. So often I'm forced to connect with Wi-Fi at the airport or in a cafe. The problem is that these networks are never secure and riddled with hackers who steal data. I literally hold my breath each time that my data isn't being compromised. Well, I have amazing news for you because I found the Cyber Swiss Army Knife solution to both of these problems. 
It's called NordVPN. It's incredible. That allows me to access content from over 59 different countries by simply changing my virtual location with one click. Also, I was blown away that by using NordVPN on my phone, laptop, and iPad, it protects me from hackers and it gives me peace of mind while sending emails on the go from any unsecured network. I literally never knew this could exist. It's a total game changer for you and me. So, like me, go to nordvpn.com slash HSH. You get 73% off your two-year plan plus four bonus months for free. Be quick because this offer is for a limited time only. Literally, it's equivalent to buying a cup of coffee every month, a small price to pay for premium cybersecurity and access to vast amounts of entertaining content. That's a 30-day money-back guarantee if NordVPN is not for you. So there's no risk. I can't recommend NordVPN more. Go to nordvpn.com slash HSH to get going. And we're back. I want you to tell us, because we've, we've gone this entire podcast really talking about your beginnings and everything, and we haven't even said exactly what you do for Goldman because it's so incredible with some of these programs that you're involved with. So you want to give us a little quick update on exactly what you are doing now at, at Goldman day to day? Yeah, in a nutshell, I run our community engagement efforts. It's um, billions of dollars dedicated to communities across the world. So our initiatives include a million black women, which is a $10 billion commitment, the largest ever in the history of the United States, specifically focused on black women. Another one is our 10,000 small businesses initiative. Again, a 13-year-long initiative helping business owners from Chicago, Nebraska. Every state in the United States has a 10,000 small business graduate. We're treasured to have you know, Warren Buffett and Mike Bloomberg as co-chairs of, of 10,000 small businesses. We've got 10,000 women. The list goes on and on. We've got our racial equity fund, our COVID fund. So all of that falls under my remit. That sounds like, I mean, an incredible amount. How do you even keep track of all of that? I mean, because it's such an important position with what Goldman and you are doing for businesses, Black women, for, I mean, so many different things. And how are you able to really manage that day to day? I have a phenomenal team. Like anyone who comes on your podcast or like I did it, you know, in this particular way, you do it on linking arms with amazing people, lots of, you know, people of diverse backgrounds, you know, a lot of my mentors and sponsors have been white men who, you know, have, you know, saw saw something in me and led me, you know, invested in me. So a lot of it is really having a phenomenal team where you give them a lot of credit and a lot of rope and a lot of praise around what they do. And so, yeah, I would say I couldn't, I couldn't do anything without my team. Yeah, no, I would say the the people who come on my show who I enjoy the most and funny enough are the most successful are always talking about their team and it's not just them. So you are right within that group, but I always know it has a lot to do with that person as well, (laughs) but they're very good at saying, you know, they get a lot of help from their team. But I, I know with what you've done and what you've achieved at Goldman, it just sounds like you're really appreciative of, from all different walks of life, of the people that helped get you there. And were there any specific 
people or instances that really, aside from your parents, that you can recall that that really helped you kind of get over a hump and and achieve more? I have to say our CEO, David Solomon, has been incredible for my own career and my boss, John Rogers. Um, I was, you know, chief compliance officer and I was in the trenches on some of the most complicated regulatory matters. And very often, I think with people of color, people see your performance, but they don't see your potential. And to take a chief compliance officer and to say, I'm going to make that chief compliance officer, I'm going to bring them to the executive office. I'm going to put them as president of our foundation. I'm going to put them in charge of billions of dollars when they haven't run that kind of PL before. And I'm going to invest in them in that way. That happened because of John Rogers and David Solomon. And so I think that that, you know, if we can have more people see not just the performance, but the potential of the people who work for them, that access, I think, is critical. And the two of them really, you know, saw that. Just in terms of that potential, achieving that potential and getting there, what did that feel like when they told you like this was going to be, you know, your new role? You're excited, of course, but you feel this tremendous sense of responsibility, right? You're like, I've got to get this right. I've just got to, I've got to blow this out of the water. I've got to really, I've really got to succeed at, you know, at this. And I, I want to make them proud. I want to make, I want to do the best for our firm. And I think, look, there can be a lot of cynicism around Wall Street and what you do. And it's sort of interesting being on the inside where people really wrestle with these issues, right? You know, and I I sometimes want people on the outside to be able to like have a microphone in the room where people are debating racial equity. They're doing it. We do it. We're de- they're debating sort of the COVID fund and, and, you know, the allocation and where that should go and how deeply we want to help communities and which communities need it most. And that kind of dialogue is real and it's happening in corporate America, in our boardrooms. And I feel like, you know, some of the cynicism that's out there is understandable. And frankly, I have it too and had it too, but it's also pretty remarkable to be in those rooms. And so I think in terms of how I felt to your question, I think a tremendous sense of responsibility and sort of commitment and drive to sort of achieve and be able to do the best I can for myself as well as for the firm. Were you nervous at all and just taking on this major role? Hell yeah. <laughs> I love your honesty. <laughs> and I would imagine, but knowing from what you told me before about kind of getting punched in the face and having to get up, I assume you were anxious, but you never hesitated. I didn't. I threw myself into it because I thought the way I know how is to just give it my all. And that's a lot of force. That's a lot of light. And I'm just going to shine that and see how it goes and also be nimble enough to pivot. Like, be super, you know, I think a superpower is really sort of listening. People are telling you things all the time in their body language and their gestures all the time. And we just have to have super, you know, sort of sensitive antennas to listen to that. And I think that's been one of the things that I'm frankly really good at. And that helps a lot is sort of like reading a room, reading the body language, listening, listening, listening in all of those ways. Yeah. I think that superpower in itself and just from success or the success I've seen with people and, and in my own dealings, it's really been about understanding, reading the room, anticipating what people really are feeling and thinking. And if you have that, it's such a great opportunity to really drive conversation, direction, and what you want to. And it sounds like you've been able to do that. And I, I think 
For you now moving forward, is there a goal, is there an objective over the next couple of years that you'd love to see, obviously with everything that you're doing from the 10,000 small businesses to all of these other initiatives, is there a, a goal you you have in your mind that that you're set on? You know, as I think about it, I think about the purpose statement that the firm put out, which is sort of our true north, which is to advance sustainable economic growth and economic, sustainable economic growth and opportunity. And as I think about it, the big thing I want is to long after I've left Goldman Sachs, that that I was able to create more economic opportunity for more individuals through the programs that I ran and that that has a lasting impact. I think that's my big, that's my big goal. Now, how many people we can do that that for. Obviously, we want to do it for millions. But I think if I'm able to, when I retire, be able to say that I did that, and I think of the blast radius of that on the family, the brother, the sister, that whole network of people, I think we would have done something really good. How does it make you feel just when you're to be able to do these incredible things for people, to give them hope? How does that feel inside? You know, I think about as much as the people I'm able to give hope to. And I also think about all of the other ones that I can't, that, you know, all the no's that you give as well. And so maybe that's what makes me good at what I do, because I think about not only, yes, I was able to do it for these, but I also said no to all of these. Is there a path where some of those no's can ultimately become yeses, whether it's down the line or another program that we ran? And so, yes, it's gratifying, but it's also... It's also a reminder of all the no's, I have to say. That may be a very real message, but it's my message. I love that. Just from saying that, for you to go right to that in your mind, where it's, who am I not helping, really shows your true character and probably why you've been incredibly successful. And you know, I wanted to thank you for coming on, on the show. You're definitely an inspiration for so many people. And uh, you know, I'd love to to have you back soon enough. I'm sure in the next couple of years, we're going to be finding you doing even more incredible things. You're just the epitome of of a a complete American success story. And uh, we're so fortunate to have you on the show. Well, I'm a huge fan, Rob. I think what you're doing is fantastic. So thank you so much for having me. And yeah, watch this space. We're We're going to be doing some great stuff. I love it. Thanks, Asahi. Thank you. And that's our episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to How Success Happens wherever you get your podcasts. We come out with a new episode every Wednesday morning, and you don't want to miss it. And if you like to share, please feel free to pass along the show to an entrepreneur friend who could use a boost, and I could always use the subscribers. And do you have ideas for guests? I always love to hear about great entrepreneurs. If you know anyone, shoot me an email at hsh at entrepreneur.com or on Twitter at Robert Tuckman, that's R-O-B-E-R-T-T-U-C-H-M-A-N, or even send me a message on LinkedIn. How Success Happens is a production of Entrepreneur Media. Be sure to visit entrepreneur.com for insight on building your business, or even better yet, subscribe to our magazine. No joke, I found my first job after reading about a company in Entrepreneur Magazine back in the 1990s. It's always been my absolute favorite magazine for entrepreneurs. Thanks for listening and spending some time with me today. Until next time, my name is Robert Tuckman, just a fellow entrepreneur and your host. See you soon.